God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on My Bridge Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from City Light Church in Omaha. Here's Pastor Gavin Johnson. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you deserved the very worst, but you got the very best? I recall a certain occasion, it was just a couple of years ago, it was Mother's Day, it was a Sunday after church, I had preached that morning, had a meeting, and then uh, in the afternoon we wanted to go to Okaboji for a couple of days. And so uh, Sunday afternoon we got in my, my old pickup truck, the whole family, and we are on our way to Okaboji hoping to get there before it's dinner time. So uh, I was pushing the speed a little bit as we went north on 29 and then over into Iowa uh, how much was I pushing the speed? I wasn't certain because my truck is 18, year old, 18 years old, and sometimes things don't work. And at that time, the speedometer did not work because who needs a speedometer, right? And so I'm just kind of guesstimating how fast I'm going, going with the flow of traffic. But we got onto Highway 71. It's a north-south highway in Iowa. And just north of Spencer, I apparently got a little heavy in the foot because sure enough, here behind me comes the county sheriff. And uh, he pulls me over. And uh, you can just picture the moment. Keep in mind, it's Sunday. I've just preached a sermon to you wonderful people as your pastor, you know, probably about like honoring Christ with how we live our lives or something like that, right? In the back seat are my three kids, pastor's kids, who are uh, now, you know, being uh, uh, held by uh, an enforcer of the law because their dad has broken it. Um, their pastor dad. In the passenger seat is my dear wife and the mother of our children, on Mother's Day, being detained by the police because her husband, again, uh, has broken the law. So I am feeling simultaneously like dad of the year, pastor of the year, and husband of the year. And it only gets better from there. The sheriff comes up to my window, and uh, he's like the quintessential classic iconic sheriff. Like he has the big brim, uh, you know, highway patrolman hat. He's got a square jaw that comes out like a mile. Just looks like a, like a Marine's drill sergeant. Comes up to the window, I roll it down. Sir, do you know how fast you were going? No, I have no idea, sir. I am so sorry. Uh, my speedometer is broken. He says, well, I'll tell you, you were going 79 miles an hour. Swallow hard. Said, I suppose the speed limit is only 65, isn't it? He said, sir, the speed limit is 60. I'm going to need your license and registration, please. Proof of insurance. I'll be right back. Goes back to his car. So it 19 miles an hour over the speed limit. That's a public confession. That is in no way okay. <clears throat> I'm not proud of this moment. Uh, if you leave the church, I get it. You know, like with character like that, how can you trust a guy? Um, that's real bad. So in that moment, I'm just wondering, like, is he going to revoke my driver's license? That's, is he going to just haul me off to jail in front of my kids? Maybe it'll be a $1,000 ticket. I don't know. But whatever I have coming my way, I 100% deserve it. 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. This is in every way not okay. And so the the drill sergeants back in his uh, Hummers, what it felt like uh, for eternity. Uh, I figure he's just like got a calculator out, adding up all the fines. And I don't know, he's got a 10 keys, just printing off my ticket, I'm sure. Comes up to the window, roll down the window. He looks at me. I swallow hard and I cringe as he begins to speak. He says, I tell you what, I'm going to let you off with a verbal warning this time. What? And he looked over at my wife and he said, happy Mother's Day and winked. <laughs> handed me my stuff back, walked back to his vehicle. I tell you what, in that moment, the letdown of anxiety and fear and anticipation of what was coming wasn't, I could have kissed the guy. He probably would have arrested me had I done that. But like, can I wash your cruiser, sir? Do you want to come over? Can we buy you dinner? You need a steak. Like, I'm going to name my next child after you. What's your name again? 
I love you so much in this moment. Why? I knew I deserved justice, but he gave me mercy, and my response was gratitude. Theologian Karl Barth famously wrote, quote, gratitude follows grace like thunder does lightning. That sheriff gave me grace, and what followed was gratitude. And when you know that you personally deserve justice, but you get mercy, gratitude is the natural overflow of the human heart. That's the exact theme that we're going to see surface in today's text. Luke, the gospel writer, takes us into the scene where Jesus is at a dinner party. And at the dinner party, we see two different people encounter the very same Jesus, same grace, same person of Jesus, but they respond with two very different reactions. There's a literary tool called a foil. When you see two characters and you're supposed to distinguish between them and compare them to one another, the one character that we see is this dear woman. This woman knows the depth of her offense. She knows the depth of her sin. She understands the severity of the punishment that she should receive and when she receives forgiveness and grace from Jesus. Instead, she comes undone with exuberant gratitude and a selfless worship. The other character we see is this man with a very shallow understanding of his sin. He doesn't see himself as particularly sinful, not having done much wrong. He sees little need for forgiveness, and his response to Jesus is smug indifference. Comparing these two, I think we see the big idea surface from the text, which I would summarize in one sentence this way. Those who recognize their need for forgiveness and have received it in Jesus will respond with overwhelming love for him. And so as we study this passage this morning, the goal for us is not just to study the passage, but to also let the passage study us, to examine our hearts. We ought to ask ourselves, are we deeply aware of our sin and our need for the forgiveness of Jesus? Do we really understand our eternal plight apart from the grace of Jesus? And does the external worship and devotion of our lives reflect a a level of gratitude that we should have? So are we the forgiven woman pouring out our lives in worship and gratitude, or are we the smug religious man with cold hearts and a critical spirit? And so my heart for us, my prayer for us, is that the Holy Spirit would would grow us in humility, that we would see again the depth of our sin, and that we would also grow in gratitude, rejoicing that, that as much sin is in us, praise God that there is more grace in Jesus. Amen? And so let's hop into the text. Uh, Luke lays this scene out really in three different scenes, three little sub-scenes, developing this main idea that grace experience leads to gratitude poured out. So we're going to walk through these scenes one at a time, uh, just walking our way through the text. So the first scene that we see, I would summarize as this. Scene one is passionate worship. It's a scene of passionate worship. We start in verse 36. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him, that of course is Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. So real quick, this is one of three different times in Luke's gospel that Jesus actually is invited into a a Pharisee's home for dinner. Now remember, as we've been tracking through uh, Luke's gospel, we've learned that these Pharisees were the most religious, most rule-following Jews of their day. And up until this point, we're seven chapters in. So far, Jesus has yet to have a good encounter with a single Pharisee, okay? Uh, The Pharisees don't particularly care for Jesus. Uh, They are no fans of him. But Simon invites him over for dinner. And so we might wonder, well, why did he invite him over for dinner? 
Well, we could speculate. The text doesn't say. Maybe he's just curious. Jesus has gained quite the reputation in Galilee where he's ministering at this time. Maybe he's heard about Jesus but hasn't had a personal encounter with Jesus. Maybe his intentions are more sinister. We oftentimes see in the Gospels that the Pharisees will will try to trap Jesus or they will pick a fight with Jesus. So it could be that that, that Simon, this Pharisee, is setting the stage for that. We don't know for sure. uh, But what we do know is that Jesus... Um, entertains his invitation, comes over for dinner, and that it, at this dinner, an uninvited guest shows up, and that's where the plot really thickens and things get interesting. Verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, so real quick, we don't know this woman's name. Uh, Luke doesn't include that detail. Luke's not afraid to include names. If you look down in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, he gives a whole list of women's names that Jesus ministered to. He withholds this name. Again, we don't know why. I speculate that he is, he's, looking, he's looking out for her. He's showing some discretion, knowing that her reputation in this passage is not wonderful, uh, preceding the end. So maybe he's withholding that to, to look out for her dignity. We don't know, but what we do know is that this woman's reputation has preceded her, and negatively so. It says, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Many speculate that that phrase means she was a prostitute. That may well be so. Uh, But textually, it's not definitive. We don't know. She may have been a prostitute. But what we do know is that she was not your local Sunday school teacher who also volunteered with special needs kids during the week, okay? This woman was up to no good, and uh, her reputation preceded her. Everyone in the city knew it. She was notorious. It says, but when she learned that he, that's Jesus, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house. By the way, reclining at table, you might wonder, what's he doing? He's just eating. This is how they ate. They had a table that was low to the ground. Instead of sitting in hard wooden chairs, they would sort of lounge. They would lean forward to a table. They would eat slowly. Their, their feet would hang out away from the table. Uh, and by the way, I think we should bring back this practice. I think this is wonderful. I think, why do we sit in hard wooden chairs? And so if you ever have my family over for dinner, would you get pillows instead? Let's have a picnic on the floor. This is what they did. We'll just eat bacon all night and catch up. It'd be wonderful. They weren't eating bacon. Not yet. Uh, it says... Uh, <clears throat> when she learned that he was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. What a scene. This woman shows up unannounced and uninvited. We know that from the words, and behold, back in verse 37. That's Luke's like Bible speak for saying this woman just, she showed up. She wasn't on the invite list. And behold, a woman of the city, she shows up uninvited, unannounced, pops up on the scene, and she begins passionately worshiping Jesus. Now, just because she showed up on the scene uninvited doesn't mean she hasn't encountered Jesus before. Sort of the assumption of this text is that she has encountered Jesus before. Jesus, again, has been in this Galilee region for some time, really since the beginning of Luke's gospel. So she's likely heard Jesus' teaching. She's encountered him. Maybe she's seen miracles from afar. We don't know, but what we do know is that she's familiar with him, and now she can't wait to be near him. In verse 37, she makes her way boldly to Jesus. And I don't know if you noticed in this scene where she really is one of the main characters and the star of the scene, secondary only to Jesus, that she says exactly zero words. This woman doesn't say a single word in the entire passage, not one. It's her actions that speak to us in this text. We're going to see as we go through that conversely, the Pharisee has a lot of words to say, but he has very little devotion. This woman is the opposite. 
It's her silent sermon that preaches a lot louder to us from the text. It says she brings an alabaster flask of ointment. Commentators say that this was a no cheap offering. This would have uh, been a very expensive thing to bring with her. Likely would have cost upwards of an entire year's worth of salary to have an alabaster flask of ointment as such. And so by way of a reference point, the, the median household income in Nebraska is 60000 so let's go with that. We'll say tens of thousands of dollars of ointment. She brings her very best before Jesus Christ. And it says that as she gets close to him, she begins weeping. She's so moved emotionally, just, just being in proximity to Jesus. Her emotion overcomes her. She's undone. The floodgates of tears just open up. They're pouring out so much so that as she bows before Jesus, that her tears actually fall on his feet. She says this, she thinks to herself, this, this is convenient. His feet are dirty. If I'm crying anyway, she takes her hair down and she washes his feet with her hair. By the way, women in this culture, they, they wouldn't let their hair down in front of any man except for their own husband. This is an undignified moment. This is culturally unacceptable, but this woman is so caught up in the moment of being in the presence of Jesus that she forgets about all cultural restraints. She then kisses his feet and pours the extravagant oil on them. We find out a few verses later, Jesus' feet haven't been washed yet. He's walked there on dirt road, shared with animals. His feet are dirty, which makes this moment all the more precious as she kisses his dirty feet as a sign of devotion. By the way, all these acts, the tears, the hair, the wiping, the kissing, the oil, all of these um, are are significant. All of them are in contrast to Simon's inaction. We're going to see that in the third scene. But what I want to do right now is just point out the extravagance of this woman's adoration for Jesus. I want to just look at it on a surface. Look at how she pours herself out at the feet of Jesus. When we think about extravagant worship in our context, I think about like raising my hand in worship. Like, that's a big deal. Like, I grew up Lutheran, okay? We're Germans. We have two emotions, like hungry and tired, you know? So it's like, if I really want to swing for the fence in adoration to Jesus, you might get one hand in the pocket, one hand up, you know? If I get two up, my, my wife might say, don't get carried away. You know, it's like, that's extravagant. Or we might think of, like, someone who ties to their local church, you know? That's extravagant. 10% of all the Lord is... Now, if they go gross tax, you know, like, like pre-tax income, that's really extravagant. Ten, 10%, that's, that's a big deal. But look at this woman. Her actions demonstrate an extravagance and sincerity of worship to Jesus that, that should really be our pace setter and our model. She melts at his feet. She gives him her tears. They belong to Jesus. She gives him her riches, the ointment. They belong to Jesus. She gives Jesus her everything. She holds nothing back. And here we see this nameless, wordless woman. She teaches us the greatest lesson on worship that we will ever hear. It's not just about the songs that she sings or the little bit of tithe money that she gives or hosting a group. She gives Jesus everything. She falls at his feet. She adores him. She holds nothing back. Her life is his. It's a beautiful scene. Beautiful scene. Now, we got to ask, how is Simon, the Pharisee, the dinner host, going to respond? Certainly, he's going to be moved by this scene as we have been, right? Certainly, he's going to go get his alabaster flask of ointment and do the very same thing. Certainly, he's going to thank this dear woman for being such a pace setter in worship. Don't you love it when I get sarcastic in sermons? We should see the contrast. Let's see how he responds in verse 39. 
It says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, all the devotion, all the scene, the tears, the ointment, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman. How's that for a comment? What sort of woman this is who is touching him? For she is a sinner. Oh boy, Captain Tons of Fun. He shows up all over in the Bible. This guy doesn't notice the woman's devotion. He doesn't see the beauty of the moment and says he starts outlining the complaint in his head. He's drafting the email. <laughs> in one sentence, he both judges the woman and criticizes Jesus' ministry. Here we have two different people countering the same Jesus who extends the same grace, and they have dramatically different responses. What's the cause of their different responses? Extravagant worship and devotion from the woman and contempt from the Pharisee. Well, that's what Jesus is going to show us in the next scene. As we transition to the next verse, scene two, we're going to see a personal parable. A personal parable. Jesus uses this moment and says, let me help you understand what's happening in the room right now. Verse 40. It says, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, that's about two years income roughly. And the other 50, that's about two months income roughly. When they could not pay, he, that's the, the banker, canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And so Jesus uses simple logic. This is a very simple parable. Like, like two dudes owe the bank some money. And uh, neither of them can pay it. So they're going to end up in debtor's prison. Uh, they owe a debt that they cannot pay. They're beholden to the banker. And the lender forgives them both. He says, which one is going to be more thankful to the banker? Well, of course, the one who has 10x the debt, right? It's simple logic. Like if the sheriff had pulled me over for a broken taillight and let me off on a warning, I would have been like, oh, that's very nice. That's very great of you. He pulled me over for doing 20 over the speed limit. It was like, I want to kiss your face right now, right? The, the comparison, the measure of debt uh, that is relieved should be commensurate with the level of gratitude and, and worship and adoration. So Jesus tells this story so the woman, so that Simon would recognize that the reason this woman is pouring out her praise is that she knows she's a 500 denarii sinner. She knows she owed a debt she could never repay. And the truth is, Simon is too. He just doesn't realize it. He's blind to the pride and self-righteousness in his own heart, and he thinks he's not really that bad. He thinks he's maybe a 50 denarii sinner, if that. But what he doesn't realize is that he too, he owes a debt he could never repay. His fate is the debtor's prison unless he is forgiven. In City Light, we too owe a debt we could never repay. I want to ask you to just... Think about your affection for Jesus, even in the last week. Your thought life towards Jesus, your devotion toward him, the way you relate with him. And I would offer this. If you sense any lack of sincere worship or devotion or tangible love for Jesus, it could be that you have lost sight of the spiritual bankruptcy that you have been forgiven of. I think there's two ways to sort of downplay this debt. Right? In this text, we're all supposed to go, oh, I'm the 500 denarii sinner, right? He's forgiven me everything, right? But I think we in our pride want to kind of shrink that. 
like the Pharisee Simon does. Say, I, I, know I'm a, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not really a 500 denarii sinner. Like, my debt's not this big. And I think there's two ways that subconsciously, maybe we wouldn't articulate it, but subconsciously we can sort of downplay that debt, right, to preserve our pride. The first way to sort of downplay this 500 denarii debt is to sort of minimize God's holiness. Say, I know God has a high bar, but it's not that high. The other way is to sort of minimize our own sinfulness. Say, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not that bad. Therefore, the debt that needs canceled by Jesus isn't that big. And so on the top line, if we can convince ourselves that God's standards aren't really that high, like, you know what, he keeps kind of a low bar for us. He tolerates a little compromise, a little lust, a little self-righteousness, a little greed, a little selfishness, then our debt doesn't seem so bad. But I don't know how many of y'all have been doing the Bible reading plan. Like as a whole church, we've been reading through the Bible and we're getting near the, the end of our, our reading through the Old Testament. And goodness, I've read the Old Testament several times, but this time afresh as I read it yet again, I'm struck by God's holy standard. Like the guy doesn't compromise, right? You read some of these stories and some of these laws and you're like, God's moral law is exhaustive. It impacts every area of our lives. And, and he, shows, he shows no compromise in his standard. He doesn't lower the bar in the slightest. There's this one scene in Isaiah, which we just finished not that long ago, where uh, it's chapter 6, I think, where Isaiah has the vision of the Lord seated on his throne. And it says around the throne there's, there's seraphim, like these angels. And it says they all have six wings. Two are to fly with, two cover their feet, and two cover their eyes. And with their eyes covered in the presence of God, they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. God's standard and perfection and glory is so perfect that even the angels and their perfection can't gaze upon his excellence. God is holy and pure and righteous, and he tolerates no evil. His standard is perfect. But we can also be tempted, not, tempted to minimize the severity of our sins. We can think, yeah, God's standard is perfect, but compared to my friends and neighbors, I mean, I'm a G-rated guy in an X-rated world. You know, uh, I'm, I'm faithful to my wife. I'm generous with my finances. I serve in City Light Kids, and I only eat Christian chicken at Chick-fil-A, not that God-forsaken Raisin Cane's devil stuff, right? Like, I'm a good person. I know I'm a sinner. But friends, we have to see our sin the way that the Bible sees our sin. The book of James says that if you've broken one of God's laws, it's like you've broken all of them. Isaiah says that even our righteous deeds are like filthy, bloody rags before the holiness of God. Jeremiah, we just heard it this week. It says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things, right? That is our diagnosis. And when we come to, see with, come to terms with our sin on that level, on a 500 denarii level. And then we see Jesus who loves us unconditionally and paid for all of it and canceled that debt. We can't help but respond in gratitude. Pastor Jack Miller famously said it this way. He said, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you are more loved than you ever dared hope. City Light, do you know who we are? We are really bad sinners who have been saved by a really great savior. And that should lead to really extravagant love for Jesus. Now, in this last scene, uh, Jesus is going to sort of land the proverbial plane here. He's going to compare the actions now. Now that he's given the parable, he's going to draw it into the current context to the dinner party, compare the actions of this forgiven woman with Simon the Pharisee. Scene three, I'd summarize as this. It's a stark comparison, a stark comparison. Verse 44 says, then, he's just told the, the parable, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? 
I think that question, by the way, is sort of a double entendre. Of course, Simon sees the woman, right? He, he saw the whole thing happen. That's why he said if Jesus were a prophet, he wouldn't. He's seen the woman, but Jesus is asking, like, do you see this woman? Do you, do you have spiritual eyes to see what's happening here, Simon? He says, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them off with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. By way of cultural context, all three of these things that Jesus highlights here, the foot washing, the kiss, the oil, those were all customary roles of a host. So just like if I had you over into my home, there's certain customary things. Like if it's winter, I offer to take your coat. Can I take your coat? Can I hang it up? I might offer, can I get you guys something to drink? I might say, hey, why don't you grab a seat? You know, those are host jobs, customary host jobs. Well, in this culture, if someone showed up to your house, you would have a servant wash their feet if you have a servant. If you don't have a servant, you might wash their feet yourself. Uh, if you don't want to do that, you at least have a wash basin and a towel available for them. Why? They traveled there by foot. They share the roads with the animals. As we mentioned, you can do the math. They're due for a good foot washing before they sit down to enjoy a meal. After the foot washing, customarily would come a kiss. And so there would be a kiss on the cheek if the guests were a social peer. There would be a kiss on the hand if they were your social superior. And then third, they would end the little greeting by anointing your head with olive oil. Jesus says, Simon, you had me over for dinner. You did none of this. Not even the customary host jobs. But this woman, she didn't just wash my feet with water and a towel. She washed them with her tears and her hair. She didn't just kiss my cheek or my hand. She kissed my feet. She didn't just anoint my head with oil. She anointed my feet with what was most likely her most valuable possession. Here's the punchline. Why? Why the comparison? Verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. When Jesus says, for she loved much, he's not referring to the cause of her forgiveness, but the result. He knows that she knows that she's greatly forgiven. How? Because she has extravagant love for him. Conversely, Jesus knows that Simon vastly underestimates his sin and feels no need for the forgiveness of Jesus because he has no love for him. Not a towel, not a kiss, not a customary drop of oil. Verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. He assures her of her forgiveness. The phrase there is in the perfect tense, meaning they have been and remain to be. They are in a state of forgiveness. Verse 49. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Don't you just love this woman? Are you glad she's in the Bible? What a picture for us. She was a really bad sinner. Her reputation preceded her. She met a really good savior. Her sins were forgiven and she became a passionate worshiper of Jesus Christ. And City Light, this is our prototype. Would this be our story? City Light, we have to recognize that we haven't just been let off the hook by Jesus Christ for a speeding ticket. If you have trusted in Jesus, this is your reality. You have been rescued from sin, death, eternal hell, and the wrath of God that were staring you in the face. And if I could be so crass to remind you, hell is hot and, for, and forever is long. And Jesus has rescued you from all of that. And he has not only rescued you from that, he has promised you a home in heaven as a child of God that cannot be taken away by anything or anyone in this world, even you. Can we all agree? That's a pretty good setup. That's a pretty good gospel that we have been given. 
So this morning, I would ask you to respond. Would you let that hit your heart? And would you respond like this woman? Would you give Jesus your everything? Would you worship him not just with one hand or 10%, but like your life? Would he be the very centerpiece? Would you pour out your life before him? Say, Jesus, I am yours. You've given me all of you for my sins on a cross, and I give you all of me. I belong to you. I'm going to ask you, is there anything you've been holding back from Jesus? Anything you've been keeping out of access from him? If it's your vocation or your future or your past or your money or your relationship, Jesus wants all of it. Would you lay it at his feet? And I want to ask you, if you haven't trusted Jesus, would you trust him this morning? He is so, so good. Our sins are so, so bad. I pray the Holy Spirit would convict you of sin and then show you the incredible grace of Jesus Christ. No matter how much sin is in you, there is more mercy in Jesus, and he gives it freely. How? Verse 50 says, by faith. He tells this woman, it's your faith that has saved you. Go in peace. Faith is the connecting agent. You say, like, how do I get saved from my sins? How do I know that I have forgiveness? God has grace. We have sins. What connects the dots? It's faith. It's trusting in Jesus. It's admitting, God, I believe I'm a 500 denarii sinner, and I believe that you paid for it all. I give you my sins. I receive your forgiveness. Would you be my savior and the leader of my life? If you haven't done that yet, would you do that this morning? Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Gavin Johnson of City Light Omaha. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net.